Well, it's no secret that we are in the midst of a pandemic, a COVID pandemic, but there really is another pandemic that stretches across the globe, one that affects millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is a pandemic of persecution. It's difficult to believe as we sit here in freedom and prosperity and relative ease, and certainly in, uh, in, a, in security here. But the scenes as we just saw in the Central African Republic are going on around the world. Whether it's happening at the hands of angry, angry Hindu mobs in India, or at the hands of terrorist groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria, or ISIS in Iraq, whether it's occurring at the hands of Marxist governments like China and Vietnam and North Korea, whether it's uh, radical Islamics working with or without government uh, backing in countries like Indonesia, Pakistan, Turkey, uh, so many more. The common thread in all of these is that it is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The common targets are Christians. And again, sadly, the stories like we just watched are very common in our world today. Our brothers and sisters face persecution and the imminent uh, reality of a possibility of, or imminent possibility, I should say, of, of, uh, of threat, of violence, of confiscation of property, of arrest, uh, harassment, loss of job, uh, or even death. So the question comes, what can we do? And um, one thing we can do is look for ways to serve. As we saw their Voice of the Martyrs, along with other groups like uh, International Christian Concern and, and others get needed help, needed relief to some of our suffering brothers and sisters. We can partner with them. The number one request from our persecuted brothers and sisters is pray for us. And they don't say typically pray that the persecution will end. What they typically say is pray that we will stay faithful. I remember a number of years ago, one of our missions conference speakers, um, and uh-oh, I'm blanking on his name, but that's okay, um, he was speaking from uh, the Philippines, where he works in the southern Philippines, along with some of our, uh, our well-known folks that we pray for, uh, as John and Hannah, Moody and others. He said, the great danger is not persecution. The great danger we face is not persecution. Persecution will not f stop the spread of the gospel. Persecution will not prevent people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Persecution will not thwart God's plan. He said the great danger is fear of persecution. He says that's what will stop us. And I've never forgotten those words. Because again, it's what most of our brothers and sisters ask for. They say, pray for us that we will still be bold. Pray for us that we will stay faithful. And so we need to do that. We're going to take just a moment and I'll lead us in prayer, but hopefully it's just something that encourages us to, uh, to be faithful, to remember them regularly, not just once a year. I encourage you as well just uh, to be informed uh, on your computers. You can go to persecution.org, O-R-G, and persecution.com. That'll get you, one will get you Voice of the Martyrs, one will get you International Christian Concern. I don't remember which is which, but either of those will get you connected and you can learn more about how to pray and how to help. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come always shocked when we see images like we saw on the screen because it's hard to believe that such things are happening every day around the world, even this very day. Some of our brothers and sisters will be harassed. They will be, some will be beaten. Property will be confiscated. Some will be imprisoned. And some may lose their lives. So, Father, may we be faithful to do what they have asked of us and to remember them in prayer. Father, we ask that you would give them courage and strength to stand strong in persecution. We also ask that you would be near those who suffer, that you would give them comfort and peace. We ask, Father, that you will meet their needs for food and clothing and shelter. I think especially of families of those who are imprisoned or those who have been killed for Christ, because often the families are left behind and they are destitute. So, Father, meet their needs. Help move us and uh, encourage us to do what we can to help them. Father, we ask that you would ease their suffering. We ask that you would bring through their testimony, that you will bring many to faith in our Lord Jesus through their suffering, even bring their persecutors to faith in Christ. Father, we ask that in these areas where persecution is rampant, that you will strengthen the churches there, grow them and build them and give them boldness. We ask that you would raise up leaders and pastors especially to replace many who have been taken away and imprisoned. And Father, that you would provide Bibles and resources for believers where they are scarce. So, Father, to that end, we, we ask that you would work in their behalf, and that you would move us to do whatever it is you would have us do to be along with them. 
Your word calls us in Hebrews 13 to remember those who are being mistreated as if we ourselves were suffering. To remember those who are in prison as if we were their fellow prisoners. So make that our heart and sear it into our memory that we might stand with them. Now in these moments, as we turn our attention to your word, as we open it, may your spirit speak through your word that we might learn of you. We might learn how to live more fully and completely for you. So guide us in our time now in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy and to chapter 5 as we continue our, our study in this marvelous little book. Just by way of review, or for any of you who haven't been around um, in recent weeks, Paul left Timothy, young Timothy, in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. He left him there because there were problems in this church, in the church, in the city of Ephesus. And uh, Paul has left Timothy there. His job is to pastor, to shepherd this church, and to fix the problems. At the heart of this church's problems were some leaders who had gone wrong. They had stirred up controversies and taught strange doctrines. They had created distractions from the things that really matter with things that are frivolous and useless. And they have caused some to abandon their faith. And so we noted a few weeks ago in chapter 3, all of that was in chapter 1, we noticed a few weeks ago in chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy and to this church some detailed instructions uh, about qualifications for church leaders. What did it take to be a good and a godly elder, a good and a godly deacon, to ensure that their church and every church since that reads this and follows this will be led by godly men? Now, as we come to chapter 5, we find once again some instructions about maintaining integrity in our leaders and in our church. We pick it up in chapter 5 in verse 17 this morning as we look at matters of integrity. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The first thing I want us to note this morning is he, he directs our attention to congregational integrity. And he calls for us to honor our leaders to consider certain of our elders worthy of double honor. 
The word honor, Pastor Aaron reminded us last week, this little word honor can mean two different things in the Greek. On one hand, as we saw it last week at the beginning of this chapter, back in verse 1, we're called to honor widows. And we saw as we went through the passage that this honoring of widows meant to support them financially, to provide for them materially. It involved, in other words, a financial remuneration or, or support. And that's one way this one thing this word can mean. It can also mean, this word honor can also mean more as the way we think of it, to give respect, to uh, consider someone worthy or to obey. We see that in chapter 6, the next chapter, verse 1, and we'll actually be there a little later this morning, where slaves are called to honor their masters. It's the same word can be used two different ways, to give honor by giving respect or to give honor by, by giving financial uh, payment. And so when it says here, double honor, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. My take on that, the double honor is simply that they are, to be, they are worthy to receive both aspects of honor both that of respect and that of pay. And this verse is calling for us as a church to integrity by placing a high priority on learning God's word and to place a high priority on living God's way. Now, you may ask, how in the world, Pastor, do you get any of that out of this verse? Because this verse says, let these elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What does that have to do with congregational integrity and placing a high value on learning God's word, and placing a high value or a high priority on living God's way? And that would be a great question to ask. Because it's not very apparent looking at that verse. But notice why it is that these elders are singled out for special honor. It gives us two reasons. Look back there in verse 1. First, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. First, these are those who rule well. Now that little word, little phrase, rule well, literally translated is they lead well. Matter of fact, in some of your translations, depending on what you're looking at, it won't say rule well, it'll say lead well, or they are good leaders. In other words, these elders are good leaders who set a good example, and they are effective in encouraging and inspiring others, us, to follow along and to follow Jesus Christ, and to live godly lives. Secondly, he says, not only are they worthy of this double honor because they rule well, but he says, especially those who labor, who work hard, who expend themselves, exhaust themselves in preaching and teaching. So they are committed to learning and to teaching God's word. And there's those two priorities we're supposed to value. To live God's way 
and to learn God's word. That's why I say he's calling us here to make these a priority, and this is a matter of integrity for us, because we are supposed to desire to know God's word well so that we can live God's way faithfully. And because we value that, we're going to, we're going to invest in godly leaders who are effective in these things. And I'll get to that in a moment. Let's move on. It says that in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That little verse, whether it's apparent or not, it makes it clear that at least part of what Paul is talking about when he says double honor, part of the meaning of that is referring certainly to financial payment. Because he uses this illustration to support his point. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, pulls out an Old Testament, little obscure Old Testament law there, a rule in the law that says you shall not muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. Those of us who didn't grow up in rural country harvesting grain without the benefit of tractors where you need oxen, we really don't get this. What's an oxen treading grain? Well, it's oxen usually hooked up to a little sled and they go and walk over all the grain that they've spread out there and they're knocking the kernels of grain away from the stalks that they grow on. And he says, when you're, when you're treading the grain like that, you don't put a muzzle on the ox. And there's a picture to see. If you can see, though, they've got muzzles on the on the snouts of, of those uh, oxen. They're violating the law, the Old Testament law. The point is that if, you're, if you've harnessed these animals and you're making them work to provide food for you, you should give them the benefit of getting some of that food while they do the work. And Paul is saying, hey guys, hey church, if that works for the oxen, if that's a good principle for oxen, it's a good principle for your elders, for your pastors. Now, I'm not sure if it's really a good compliment to compare pastors to oxen. That, we can debate that one. Then he goes on and he quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And if you go back and look at that passage, you'll know that it's, it's Jesus when he gathers 70 of his followers, 70 disciples, and he sends them out on mission trips. He teams them up and says, you all go there, you go there, you go there, you go there, and you're going to go out and you're going to preach this message. And he said, when you go, don't take anything with you. And when you get to a town and someone there offers to take you home and feed you, give you a place to stay, you are supposed to receive that graciously and welcomingly. And he says, because the laborer is worthy of his wages. The point is that those who labor hard in serving Christ, Paul is saying, should be supported in their ministry. And Paul wrote similarly, 
similar things to the Corinthians. We won't look at them. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he wrote also to the Galatians another similar thing. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. So this passage is calling for us as churches to invest in faithful elders who will work hard to lead well and to teach well. And we are to honor them with respect and submission. You might recall a few months ago we were in the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews chapter 13 it says in in verse 17 it says that you are to obey your leaders and to submit to their authority. That is one of the aspects of honor that Paul is talking about here. And then he also says we are to honor as we've just noted honor them with financial support. And this is the reason I say it's a matter of integrity for us as a church is because we do these things because it is our desire to be people of integrity. And if we're going to do that, we need to know God's word and we need to be continually challenged to live faithfully. And by the way, I'm not saying any of these things because I'm looking for a raise. It occurred to me yesterday as I was writing some of this sermon and I realized that this Tuesday is our monthly deacons meeting and it's the meeting where they work on the budget for next year and where they work on pastor's salaries. And I just want to say, you know, not looking for a raise. This has nothing to do with this. As always, we just we teach through the book, and this is where it landed today at this time. That wasn't planned. The reality is there's no need for us to tell you to support us graciously and generously. You guys have done so for decades. Uh, we are, myself, the... The other pastors, the others here on, on staff, we are generously cared for by you as a church, and we say thank you. You have gotten the point. You have invested in, in, in us because you desire to live faithfully for Christ, and we try to do our part to, to serve well and to lead well and to work hard. He moves on to another aspect of integrity in the church to talk about leadership integrity, integrity of the leadership. A couple of aspects here that we need to note. We'll begin, we'll pick it up in, again in verse 19. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a couple of things here in this section that we as the church are to do to maintain the integrity of our leadership. And the first thing that we are charged to do is to protect the integrity of our leaders by not entertaining rumors or innuendo or false charges. Leaders as we are well aware, whether it's in the church or even in the community, become easy targets for slander and false accusations. Because when leaders don't do what some people want or they do things that, that 
that people don't want or whatever, they sometimes ruffle feathers and sometimes people um, get back by slandering leaders. What he says is we need to be careful so we don't admit a charge, we don't consider or act on charges against an elder or a leader in the church without two things, two safeguards that he insists on when charges are brought against a leader. The first is that there will be corroborating testimony, that there should be multiple witnesses, two or three witnesses. It's not just one person saying, well, you know, I have this problem with elder so-and-so, or elder so-and-so said this or did this. There needs to be corroborating evidence. Secondly, notice he says two or three witnesses. You require not only corroborating testimony, but you you require witnesses. That is, not nameless, anonymous sources. You require names and faces, people who go on the record. See, by the way, you will notice that A lot of our system of law here in this country is actually based on some of these principles. God says it works within the church and the the government or our founding fathers said, hmm, that's good in government too. (laughs) Don't entertain rumors and innuendo. That's one way that we keep our leadership, the integrity of our leadership intact. But the reality is sometimes leadership is wrong. Sometimes leadership sins. Sometimes there are real problems. And that's the second way that we, we need to keep leadership or the integrity of leadership. What happens when the charges are true? Look at the next verse, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The second principle here is Do not allow guilty elders, guilty leaders, guilty pastors to stay in sin. If there there are witnesses, if there is evidence that these charges are true, they must be dealt with. Notice a couple of things, though. It says, for those who persist in sin, there's a little implication behind that. What it means is that they persist in sin indicates that there has been an opportunity where this, this leader, this elder, has been confronted with the problem and they've had opportunity to confess and to repent, to change. And if so, in many cases, that is the end of the matter. But the point here, for those who persist in sin, it's still a problem. They won't own up to it, or they continue in it. If that, if... If approaching them and trying to, you know, Matthew 18, we won't go through there, but through the process, if that fails, then he says you are to rebuke in the presence of all. There is to be publicly in the sphere of the church 
an exposure of this sin, a rebuke and discipline brought on this leader. You might say, wow, that's kind of harsh. Why do all this publicly? I will never forget back when our kids were little, experience one day where one of our two children, I won't name names so I don't get anybody in trouble here, one of our two children was in the bathtub and they were instructed to sit down. They were trying to stand up and there was, no! Any of you parents ever had that? Sit down. No! And you realize, game on, you know? <laughs> Here we go. And uh, there's the battle of the wills. And they are determined not to sit down, and you are determined that they must. And as a good parent, you realize this is a battle that must be won. They can't think they have the upper hand. And so you go through the whole process. Look, you need to sit down. If you don't sit down, this will happen. What will happen if you don't sit down? Blah, 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 blah. You know, spanking, you know, okay. Um, so sit down. No! Okay, game on. You know, here we go. And so you go through the whole thing. Eventually, I prevailed because I had to as a good parent. But it wasn't without fighting World War One, World War Two, World War Three, World War Four. If you have a strong-willed child, you've been there sooner or later. Well, well, I was right there toward the end of the whole war. And I happened to look over, and in the doorway, the bathroom doorway, was the other of our children, like this. Eyes big like that, and an expression on their face that I could read plainly. It was note to self. Don't ever try this. <laughs> Why is this done publicly with leaders? Because if they refuse to accept confrontation over their sin, if they refuse to admit it, if they refuse to correct it, it is to be dealt with because sin is not insignificant. It is not trivial. And it must not be tolerated in in the body of Christ, and it is there as a warning to all, so that all, it says, all will look at it and go, hmm, note to self, I don't want to go there. That's the point. I don't want to go down that path. How important is it to hold leaders accountable? Look at the next verse, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. How important is it? Paul says, Timothy, church, I'm calling God as a witness, God the Father. I'm calling Jesus Christ as a witness. I'm calling all the angels of heaven as a witness that I'm charging you to keep these rules. Keep your leaders accountable. That's how significant it is. We have great problems in a great number of churches in our land. Because leaders are allowed to go 
and live in sin and do things that are wrong and they are not held accountable. Paul moves on from congregational integrity to leadership integrity. Oops, I left those little words out. Sorry. I'll leave it up for just a second. And he moves on to personal integrity. He gets a little more personal, I think, here, talking to Timothy a little more directly. Timothy is pastor. And he says, Timothy, here's a few words about personal integrity. Verse 21, the rest of it. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Says Timothy, don't play favorites. Don't don't act uh, don't act hastily. Don't just prejudge. Listen carefully, but then don't act with partiality. Don't give this person a pass because they're your favorite. Don't give this person a pass because they give you good Christmas gifts. Don't give this person a pass because they always vote with you in the board meetings. (laughs) At the same time, don't harass this person. Don't don't, uh, treat this person unfairly because they have different opinions than you often do or you just don't like them as well as you do somebody else. Don't play favorites. Sadly, that often happens in churches. People play favorites. By the way, this, the chapel here is a joy. I've been here now almost 40 years, most of them not a senior pastor. But it has been the same no matter who is the pastor. You are such a loving bunch of folks. And one thing this church doesn't do is play politics. You choose godly leaders and you honor them. And they lead well. And it is a delight to be a part of this all of these years. We want to keep it this way. We're looking at Paul writing to Timothy in a dysfunctional church. And I'm thankful that we are not in one. So we can relax a little bit here. But we still need to see the principles. They're important. Don't play favorites, he says. He goes on. Verse... 22, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Picking up a little bit of a point that he mentioned back when, in chapter 3 when he's giving re, the qualifications for elders and deacons. He says, don't, don't be hasty to lay on the hands. Don't grab somebody and just quickly move them into leadership. Because when you do, and if, if you move them in quickly and they're just really not ready for it and they're not mature enough for it, they're not right for it, and they burn out, they flame out, they mess up, they crash and burn, and in the process they, they fall into sin, they bring others into sin, he says you share some culpability in that. That's why he says don't take part in the sins of others by moving them into leadership when they should not be. Instead, he says, keep yourself clean, keep yourself pure here. 
I'm going to skip past verse 23 for the moment because I think it's kind of a little interlude that's just kind of stuck in there. But let's move on because verses 24 and 25 continue this thought. It says, read with me in verse 24, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It's a lot to read through those verses and then try to figure out what does that really mean? What's he saying? I think when you put those two verses and you connect them directly with verse 21, excuse me, verse 22, that it makes total sense. What he's saying is that some men obviously are not suitable for a leadership, a ministry position in the church. It's obvious their sins go before them. I mean, you just look at their life and you go, whoa, that, that, that is not right. That is sin and this person should not be in leadership. It says obvious with some. He moves on, but some are revealed to be unsuitable. You see, the sins of others appear later. It is revealed later through the process of judgment. Judgment here not being the the judgment of God at the great white throne or in heaven. It is simply the process of judgment, evaluation, of vetting a leader. Then their sin becomes apparent. See, what he's doing in this, he's calling us to vet potential ministers thoroughly. He goes on, some good works are conspicuous. With some, you've known these folks long, you've seen them long enough. It is readily apparent through their life, through their heart, through their service, that they are ready for ministry. They are ready for leadership. But then there are others that are revealed as suitable only over time through the process of observation and investigation. We know how that is. We've, we've been in this church and you, it's easy with some to identify there is someone who is living faithfully for God and has, is gifted and equipped and is already serving in, in so many ways. They, need to, they are ready to be a leader. It's obvious. But sometimes it is only through the process of investigation as we, and observation as we look that we discover that This person who is always seemingly in the background and always very quiet and we discover the more we get to know them that there is great depth of wisdom. There is great depth of knowledge. There is great godliness. There is great grace in this one. Like the old saying, still waters often run deep. I think that's the point of those two verses. We need to vet potential ministers and elders and leaders thoroughly. Because with some, it's obvious. With others, it's not. And we will never know unless we are careful as we, uh, as we evaluate potential leaders. Now I want to move back very quickly wow, to verse 23. In the midst of all of that, 
the Apostle Paul, I think, interrupts himself for a moment to express a very, very personal concern just for Timothy. He says, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent illnesses. He says to Timothy, take care of yourself. Paul understands very, very well that ministry can often be difficult. It can be arduous. It can be draining. It can be stressful. And Paul knows Timothy pretty well. He knows that he is um, he's a little frail. He's very sensitive. And... Uh, Apparently, Timothy's health is struggling right now. Maybe it's a result of bad water in Ephesus. Maybe it's a result of all the stress of trying to deal with this dysfunctional church and the problems all these leaders caused. And now, here's Paul writing all of this stuff. Okay, Timothy, here's more that you need to know. Here's more that you got to do. And Paul, I think, is recognizing as Timothy's reading this, he thinks, I I bet Timothy is reading this right now and he's just developing another ulcer. (laughs) And so he stops and he says, hey, Tim, ease up a minute. He says, Timothy, I know that you have chosen to drink only water. Probably he has done that out of a vow, out of a concern that he wants to keep himself pure. And he's just trying to strip off anything unnecessary because he wants to focus on Christ. He's saying, he's just drinking water. And, And Paul says, you know, Timothy, that's great. In your process of trying to keep yourself pure spiritually, which I just told you you need to do, keep yourself pure, but in the process of that, don't neglect taking care of yourself physically. It says, in your care to keep yourself pure, don't neglect the fact, man, you're suffering physically, and a little bit of wine will help with that. Take a little wine, he says, for your stomach problems. You'll do well with that. Personally, don't play favorites. Be cautious about putting people into leadership. Vet them thoroughly and take care of yourself. As we wrap it up this morning, I want to look at the next two verses, the first two two verses of chapter 6, that one more group of people to whom Paul turns his attention And it kind of seems unusual, but I think what he's doing is turning our attention from inside the church walls to outside the church walls, to what I call real-world integrity. We've talked about congregational integrity, leadership integrity, personal integrity, now real-world integrity. And he addresses a group that we probably wouldn't think to address here. Follow along, I'll read. Now let all who are under a yoke as bondsmen regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. Teach and urge these things. He turns his attention to slaves. 
And he says, slaves, there are two things that you need to do. You need to, first of all, honor your masters. And secondly, you are to honor your master all the more if they are a believer. Don't use their status as a, as a, brother, as a brother in Christ, as a fellow believer, for you to slack off on your work. Apparently, many of the believers in this little church, or this big church, we don't know how big it was, this church in Ephesus, apparently many of the believers there are slaves. Slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. Estimates by the historians have uh, somewhere close to half of the population are slaves. And in this church, as in many of the New Testament churches, slaves become followers, become believers of Jesus Christ. Many folks today, many Christians will come to a passage like this, and there's several here in the New Testament, and read this when slaves are addressed and go, wait, wait a minute. The New Testament here talks about slavery and it doesn't condemn it. It doesn't say this is a horrid evil. And it shouldn't exist. And why doesn't it do that? Well, and they immediately just say, well, maybe I just dismissed the whole Bible because I can't believe it. They fail to really take everything in context. And we don't have time to do that this morning to understand. Let me just say two things. First of all, go over to chapter 1 and verse 14. And what you'll see there is that it talks about slave trading. As, I'm sorry, not 14, verse 10 lists slave trading as a sin and a list of grievous sins. Secondly, while the New Testament does not outright condemn slavery, it shatters to pieces the foundations upon which slavery is built, ultimately providing the, the, um, the ammo, as it were, to destroy slavery. Galatians 3.28, for example, says, as a number of other passages do in the New Testament, that in Christ there is no distinction between slave and free. We have the same status before God. There is neither Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male, female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Salvation is open to everyone, whether a free man or a slave, and there is no difference how it is obtained. It's not anything that we earn. It is a gift of God, and there is only one way that we're saved, through one Savior, Jesus Christ. In the church, there are equal opportunities for free men and slaves. Slaves, a slave can become a leader, a slave can become a teacher, a slave can become an elder in the church. Theoretically, it was possible for a slave to be an elder in the church and his master to be under his authority in the church. I don't know that it ever happened, but it is possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says that in Christ, both slave and free have been baptized into one body. We've been placed as members into one body, the body of Jesus Christ. We are members of the same family. And as we've already seen, that we are brothers, as he says. Don't use your status as a brother, slave and master. 
He says, don't abuse that relationship. For that reason, Paul writes to his friend Philemon, the little book in your New Testament, and to Philemon he says, hey, Phil, sending back your runaway slave Onesimus to you. Welcome him back, but no longer as a slave. Welcome him back now as something far better. He's a brother. See, how does slavery continue in that reality? The focus of Scripture, however, isn't on changing our circumstances. Rather, the focus of Scripture, both regarding slaves and all of us, is not on changing our circumstances, but rather changing, or excuse me, but rather it's about honoring God in our circumstances. See, we always want to get our circumstances changed. God wants us to honor Him in whatever circumstance we are in. He wants us, as the old saying goes, to bloom where we're planted. Because we might not be able to change our circumstance. But if we honor God where we are, He will reward us. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 8 says, Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does, whether slave or free. The slaves here, most of them never would have an opportunity to remove themselves from slavery, to to gain their freedom. What good news it is to hear that as a slave, I am received by God, saved by Him, received as a child. I am brother and sister to other believers. I am... No less, no more than anyone else. I am equal in standing before God with others. And I have a destiny in heaven and reward there. And if I serve well where I am, Jesus pays that back. That's good news. That was great news for the slaves and for the poor back then. And it is good news for us today. It is good news for the poor of today, for the downtrodden of today, for the oppressed of today, for our suffering and persecuted believers around the world today. This is the hope of the gospel. We do not live for the hope of here and now. We do not live for the wealth and the reward of here and now. We live... For the assurance of our eternal reward and our eternal destiny. And so why am I as a slave to honor my master? Paul has taken the focus and shifted it out of the church and into the real world. And he calls for these slaves to serve with integrity in the real world of oppression and difficulty. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, so that God's name won't be defamed and so that the gospel won't be slandered. We wonder what application does this have to any of us? None of us here are slaves. None of us here are masters. Only a few of us here are elders or pastors. So what does any of this stuff really have to do with us today where we are? 
Well, simply this. If integrity is required of the slaves, those who have the least amount of freedom that we can imagine, those who have every reason to declare, this is unfair, I should get a pass, I should get a buy on this, I shouldn't have to to live up to any standards of integrity because after all, life is unfair. If he can say this to slaves, then he's saying it to us as well. If he can expect it of them, integrity is required all the more of all the rest of us. Whether we are standing in a pulpit or sitting in the pew, or whether we're a leader or whether we're a follower, whether we are a teacher or whether we are a student, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, God desires integrity in his people. God desires integrity in his church so that God's glory and his goodness won't be defamed by those who wear his name. So that the good news of the gospel will be attractive when it's seen in us and proclaimed by us rather than be something that offends and turns people off. Because what they see is people who don't have integrity. See, that God wants us to be people of integrity, and rightly so. Let's pray. Father, a lot of stuff here, so much that we needed to hear, even though a lot of it's not pleasant. The things that we are called to here are difficult. But you call us as a congregation to have integrity. You call our leaders to be people of integrity. You call us to be people of integrity personally. You call for us to live out our integrity in a world where it is often incredibly difficult because the world abuses and it's not fair. Father, I pray that we would indeed put this into practice, that we would learn your word well so that we can live faithfully for you, so that your name is honored rather than being shamed so that the gospel is attractive rather than people refusing to hear because they don't see it lived out in our life. So, Father, make us to be people of integrity for our good and for your glory. Amen.